We are continuing our work through the Gospel of John. Over the last several weeks, we've been focusing on what's called Jesus' farewell discourse. It's his conversation that he has from chapter 13 through chapter 17 with his disciples as he prepares them for what's about to come next. We are picking that up in John chapter 16, beginning at verse 16, and reading through the end of the chapter this morning. In your pew Bibles, that can be found on page 1072. And the words will be on the screen as well. Again, Jesus is speaking and he continues by saying, A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father... So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sometimes I, I think it's hard to 
overestimate how much the world has changed since these smartphones have come into invention. In fact, I can think of many times in telling stories of my upbringing and my past to my daughters where Jen or I will have to explain to them. Now, remember, that was before cell phones existed. We used to be able to get lost where we were trying to go somewhere, didn't know exactly where it was, and, and all of a sudden we had no idea where we were. And let alone were we unable to pull up one of these and find exactly a spot on the map where we are. We couldn't even call anybody to ask, where am I and how do I get out of here? If we didn't know our homework assignment or didn't understand it, we couldn't just pull out our phones and text our friends or, or search in Google, how do you do this kind of math equation and what does this mean? We had to just open up our books and try to figure it out on our own. We would eat in restaurants without reading the reviews first and knowing whether other people thought it was a good restaurant or a terrible one because of the reviews. We were disconnected. And again, things have changed so much because of the pervasiveness of, the, of these devices in our pockets and their availability. And it's getting to the point where it's almost hard for people who have grown up with this technology to even understand what life was like before they existed. I use that as in some ways a bit of a poor analogy, but something important to keep before us as we, again, contemplate the text that we read for this morning and think about the disciples and where they were at. Because in so many ways, before the cross and before the empty tomb of Easter, they couldn't even comprehend what life was going to be like after those events took place. And we have to kind of remind ourselves that they lived in a totally different world before the cross than they would after the cross. So, for example, last week, in talking about what would happen next and preparing his disciples, Jesus said that he was going to send to them the helper, another paraclete, the Holy Spirit, now, the disciples would have known about the Spirit of the Lord. They would have heard about the Spirit's role in creating the world. They would have been aware how certain great figures of their ancestry had been blessed with the presence of the Spirit of the Lord. People like Moses or Elijah or Elisha, these great heroes of the faith that had the Spirit in order to do incredible things. But but that was for those heroes, for those great people way back then. Not for the average person that lived that day. And in many ways, the spirit would have been far removed from their experience. And they wouldn't imagine what life could be like with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Or similarly, think about how they would have thought and approached God Ever since Adam and Eve had been ex kicked out of the garden, uh, the, the relationship with God and humanity had been a distant one. God was not at all someone that could be approached lightly or easily. And in many ways, this was symbolized by where they worshipped God at, at the temple. 
Again, they would have been aware that God existed everywhere and was everywhere present, but it was really at the temple where you got to engage with God, where his presence was most concentrated and where he could be approached, but not everyone could approach him easily. First of all, to even get into the whole temple complex, you had to be clean. You had to make sure that there was nothing about you that you had done or interacted with or experienced recently that allowed you, prevented you from going into the presence of God at the temple. And then when you did approach, you had to approach him with fear and with sacrifices and offerings. And, and in that approach, Gentiles were able to go to a certain part of the temple, but there was a, a, a mark where they could go no further and no closer to God. Jewish women were able to go a little bit closer, a place where they could worship in the courts, but again, there was a, a line, a place where they were not allowed to get any closer to the presence of God. And, and men could go a little bit closer, Jewish men, but there were places where they too were not allowed to go into the building proper to the most holy place and the holy of holies. That was reserved just for the priests. And in fact, the, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, was divided by a curtain that only the high priest was ever able to enter into, and that only once a year, again, with great fear and trembling. And so all of those things in many ways were a barrier to God. And so yes, God was present, but your relationship with God was one that had to be demonstrated and developed through the work of the priests and with the help of the temple and all of that. And, and in many ways, God was, was separated from them. But now here had come Jesus. And for the last several years, the disciples had been following this, this rabbi that acted differently. And he talked about God in a different way. And through his signs and his miracles, he demonstrated that he and the Father were one. And yet, it wasn't the pious Pharisees that he most spent his time with. And it wasn't the religious leaders and the priests that he interacted with. But he ate with sinners. And he sought out and he touched the, the, the ill and the infirmed. And he healed them with his power. And the disciples in all of this were starting to think that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And this was seen in that not that long ago, just a few days prior to what we just read, the great triumphal entry where they had all of these wonderful ideas of who Jesus was, that he was coming to defeat the Romans, to reestablish the greatness and the independence of the nation of Israel, and that they, his disciples, would have places of honor in this kingdom that he was going to establish but ever since in this farewell discourse instead of talking about honors and and battles and victories to be won on on the the political fear, sphere jesus was talking about betrayal Talking about leaving them and going away and, and his conversation just was, was overwhelming for them to understand. And they were confused and they were lost. And in being lost, they, they felt emotionally hurt. And they kept asking these questions over and over again. What does this mean? 
And that's where our text for this morning starts. Again, in verse 16, Jesus reiterates, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And then, a little while, and you will see me. Now again, because we are on this side of the cross, we know that when Jesus talks about a little while and we see the rest of the context of this passage, that he's referring to very soon he is going to the cross where he will die. And therefore, the disciples will no longer be able to see him. But in a little while after his death, on the third day, he's going to rise again and the disciples will see him. We know this. They don't. And because of that, their confusion is a a major theme of our text. Their struggle to try to understand what in the world Jesus is speaking about is a major theme of, of what we see going on here. And again, we should be sympathetic to that. And we have to recognize that that wasn't entirely their fault. Jesus had said earlier in verse 12 of this chapter, the text that we read last week, that there was much that he wished he could share with them, but they were unable to bear at this time. And in our text today, in verse 25, Jesus admits that he's speaking to them in figures of speech. Again, the disciples are not only ready, but they are unable to even understand or comprehend what's all about to take place. And when Jesus does answer their question, and he does talk about what they should expect, the answers he gives are not very encouraging. He talks about the fact that his disciples will, as he says in verse 20, weep. And they will lament. That they will be full of sorrow. And that they're going to experience that this while the world rejoices. That as they look around, all kinds of people in the world are going to be celebrating and they're going to be happy, but it's going to be at the expense of the emotions of the disciples. And then we read in verse 28, a statement where Jesus finally gets uh, congratulated for being clear when he says, I came from the Father and have come down into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Again, this statement is celebrated as, okay, finally he's not speaking in figures of speech. And it is one of the clearest, most succinct statements of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and what he did in leaving heaven to come to this earth and his return to heaven after his resurrection. And in response to that, the disciples say, well, now we know, now we believe. And yet after expressing their their belief, Jesus responds by saying, do you now believe? And in many ways, most people believe that's somewhat of a a sarcastic answer. And there's there's two two options with that. Some look at that and Jesus is saying, well, do you now believe? After all of the things that you have seen and experienced, after all of the miracles that I performed and the teachings that you heard, finally now you get it. Or the other option that I actually tend to agree with is that Jesus is actually saying, do you now believe? And I say that because where he heads next. As soon as he expresses that, he explains to disciples that as soon as things start to happen, they're going to abandon him as well. 
That not only is Judas going to betray him, and as he has said, Peter is going to deny him, but all of the disciples are about to scatter, and they are going to abandon Jesus during his time of need. So the question is, do you actually believe? You may think you understand where things are headed, but you really have no idea. And again... We need to be sympathetic to them. It's not their fault. Just like, and this is again, I have to confess, a very poor analogy, but just like you trying to explain to someone any earlier than the 1990s or even the year 2000, the difference that this would make in their culture, in our lives, it would be incomprehensible for someone to understand any earlier than that. The disciples are completely unable to even comprehend all of the things that were about to take place. That Jesus, that is sitting in front of them, that had never done anything wrong or harmed anyone, had only loved people, would soon be arrested. And that he would be arrested with the help of one of the disciples. And that when he was arrested, that none of them would stand by his side, but they would all run away in fear for their own lives. And that within a matter of hours, Jesus would be crucified. He would be executed by the courts of that day. It's absolutely incomprehensible. It's like imagine that within the next two days, I would be getting a lethal injection because I was uh, arrested and persecuted. You, you would never believe it. It would be impossible. But then, that sorrow would be just temporary. Because on the third day, he would rise again, come out of the tomb, and everything that is important would change completely. So far, we've been focusing on the difficult and the hard. We've been talking about the confusion of the disciples and about the sorrow that they were about to endure. But let us not miss the fact that actually that is not the point of this text. As we've highlighted last week, Jesus is clear that what he is about to do is being done to the advantage of the disciples. And that was emphasized last week in his promise to send the Holy Spirit, this one who would guide them, who would direct them, who would lead them in the truth and in their service. And while Jesus in our text does talk about weeping and lament and sorrow, he says that all of this is only going to be temporary and short-lived. And once that temporary struggle is over, it will be replaced with joy. He uses the analogy of giving birth, an analogy that, that many of you can relate to. That when it's time to deliver, there's a lot of fear and anxiety. And there is indeed pain. But that pain is quickly forgotten. And quickly removed from your memory when you hold that new life in your arms and you rejoice at the gift that it is. And that's exactly what the disciples are going to experience. That yes, there's going to be sorrow, but new life is going to come. He says in verse 22, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice 
and no one will take your joy from you. The sorrow will be temporary. The joy as a result will be permanent and it will not be removable. What is more is that their answers, their questions will finally be answered. He continues in that quote I just read in verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. And that's because when the resurrected Lord stands before him, them, then all of their questions that they thought were so important and that they couldn't understand will be completely erased in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. And then they will understand what was going on. Beyond joy, their relationship with God will be completely changed. Verses 26 and 27 at first, it seemed like a, a, better, a little bit of a difficult text. Let me reread it. Jesus says, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now at first, that seems like a bit of a contradiction. Didn't Jesus say several times now, ask in my name and it will be done for you? So why is he saying, I do not say, I will ask on your behalf? But the explanation is that their relationship with God is about to change completely. The beautiful point is that while Jesus is our mediator, that he does act as a high priest, the great high priest, Relating us to God, the reality is that the distance that had been between them and God is now going to be removed because of the actions of Christ. That after the cross, after the tearing of the curtain that separated the most holy place from those that worship God at the temple, that now instead of approaching God through priests and through uh, other mediators, they can go to God directly. And so what Jesus is saying here is your prayers when you approach God aren't going to be asked, answered just because I go and beg the Father on your behalf. But your prayers will be answered because you can go to God directly. And God loves you. And that is why when you ask for things in my name, God's going to complete your joy and give you the blessings. Meaning that... After the death of Jesus, their relationship and their access to God in worship, in spirit, in experience, and especially in prayer is going to be completely changed. But in the meantime, Jesus says in verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's hard to come up with a better conclusion to much of what Jesus has said throughout this farewell discourse. Jesus is acknowledging that the world has and will continue to throw all kinds of trials and struggles and persecution against Jesus and his followers. And yet... Amidst those times of turbulation, the invitation is instead of fearing to have trust. To trust that Jesus is God. To trust that God does have a plan. 
to trust that although they are going to go through a time of struggle and pain, that that path is the only path toward restoration of their relationship with God for the forgiveness of their sins and ultimately to trust that that path will lead to joy. And in trusting, they can know his peace. And it all happened. Yes, Jesus was arrested. He was betrayed and he was abandoned and left alone. He did die a painful and a terrible death on a cross. The worst death imaginable. And it broke the disciples' hearts. They scattered and they were confused and they were lost. But he rose again. In a little while, he was seen by them. He was touched by them. He ate with them. And their questions were answered or they disappeared in irrelevance. And the Spirit did come. And we are able to approach God in a whole new way. And we can know the hope and the joy and the peace that can never be taken away from us. Yes, the world has thrown all kinds of things against us, but Jesus has overcome the world. Now, as one commentator points out, that word would not be so very encouraging if it was like a, a professional golfer that, you know, tees up a shot and puts it exactly where he wanted it and says, see, I did it, so now you can do it. And we'd say, I'm not a professional golfer. There's no way I can do that. No, the promise is Jesus has overcome the world for us, for you. That his death was to endure all of the punishments and all of God's wrath against your sins so that you can be completely forgiven and your relationship with God can be totally renewed and restored. That is what we will be celebrating next Sunday and that has changed everything. On that side of history, before the cross, the disciples were confused. And they had no way of understanding all that was about to take place and everything that was about to change. But on our side of the cross, we do. We can look back and we can see how all of those promises were fulfilled. And that's to our advantage. We have an advantage in understanding better what Jesus was talking about in these texts and how he was preparing his disciples for these events. We have the advantage of knowing that all of his promises did come true and therefore that builds our confidence in his trustworthiness and in his faithfulness. And we have the advantage of having lived with the benefits of all of those things our entire lives. Which again goes back to that analogy of the cell phone. For people who have grown up with that technology, it's hard to understand what life was like before it. And so they take it for granted. The reality is that oftentimes we do the same thing with our relationship with Christ. We take it for granted that we can just approach him in prayer. We take it for granted that we have the Holy Spirit available to us. And so the question is... Are we, on this side of the cross, truly living into and appreciating all of the ways that the important things of this world has been completely changed through Jesus Christ? 
do we pray to God regularly in order to deepen our relationship with him? Or do we only approach him when great things come in up our lives and, and we need something from God? Do we appreciate the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and are we asking the Spirit to direct us and guide us and then promising that when we do feel the prompting of the Spirit, we'll respond and act and go and serve? Or do we more often tell the Holy Spirit, no, be quiet. I can't do that or I won't. Do we live with the deepest appreciation that God says, I know you, and I love you, and you are mine. Therefore, love me, and live for me, and build my kingdom, and continue the work of Jesus Christ. It is hard for us to even imagine the benefits and everything that changed when Jesus came out of that tomb. And yet we live in those benefits. It's something the disciples couldn't even comprehend, but we have. Therefore, live in that irremovable joy. Live with the confidence of the comfort that you belong to Jesus Christ. Live knowing the hope that because you trust in Jesus, your relationship with God is not only restored and renewed in this life, but you can look forward to eternity with him. Because what he has done for you. In celebration of that, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are and what you have accomplished on our behalf. It's hard for us to even imagine life before the cross and how you were so separate from your people and, and the absence of your Holy Spirit. We don't even know because we've never experienced life without it. But also we therefore confess that we sometimes and often neglect all of the benefits that we've experienced in you. And I pray that especially this week as we prepare for communion that you will renew our joy. You will renew our hope. And you will remind us that while we still have struggles and questions and trials in this life. That you have overcome the world. That the victory is won and we live in the truth of that victory. You are our living hope. And therefore, may we live lives worthy of the calling that we have received, guided by your spirit and serving you in everything that we do and say, knowing that joy that you have given to us. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.